Hi, everyone. For this week's episode of What Works, we are debuting the first of our UK-based angel investor series. Richard Howard, who works out of the AWS London office, has interviewed a number of angel investors about the mistakes first-time founders should avoid, why CEOs should be open to mentorship, and more. First up is Sunil Shah, CEO of O2H Ventures, who primarily invests in the biotech therapeutics sector. Hello, my name is Richard Howard. I'm a business development manager for AWS in the UK. I'm doing a podcast series with angel investors. With me today is Sunil Shah. He is the current UK Business Angel Association Angel of the Year. He has an investment vehicle, O2H, which we'll talk about. And he's made on his own around 20 angel investments. Sunil, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for coming. Uh, could you give us a little bit of, of your background and introduction to Sunil? Yep, no, happy to do that. So um, I'm a biochemist by training, and then I joined a management consultancy called PA Consulting Group, and I joined the life sciences practice where I was there for about three and a half, four years. Post that, I was meant to join Shearing Plow in the US, but I fancied doing a, an MBA or something um, a little bit more formal and closer to home, so I did that at Cambridge at the uh, Judge Institute of Business. Um, at the end of my MBA, I... I had this entrepreneurial bug in my body. I wanted to do something a little bit more um, adventurous. So at, well, as I got towards the end of that, I, I called up my brother. He was at Accenture at the time. And I said to him, hey, you know, do you fancy doing something more entrepreneurial? And he said, oh, Sunil, you know what? I'm doing really well in my career. Um, I, you know, I'm in strategy and I'm doing all these great projects. I said, look, just think about it. We've always talked about it as brothers to do something together. Uh, so he came back from London to Cambridge that night and he said, okay, so I've quit my job. <laughs> what next? I said, I have no idea whatsoever. It must have been so, a very convincing phone call. Yeah, well, you know, um, we've always talked about it. You know, as, as kids, you grow up, you always want to do something more entrepreneurial. And we had this of kind course. of kind of Thatcher's children in that way. We've always grown up as, with trying to be a bit more business-minded. But we both had the technical background. So Prashant was an engineer. I was a biochemist. And we thought the consulting stuff set us up very well for doing something more entrepreneurial how wrong we were because <laughs> um, actually as an entrepreneur you end up having to learn all your business skills all over again um, what you learn at business school and what you learn in consulting is very different from actually running and growing a business from from scratch um, so anyway we, we started with a blank piece of paper and back then um, it was kind of dot-com crazy or dot-com mania going on and we wrote a business plan for a, a, an online gift site and the gift site was called surpriseyourwoman.com we wanted to do something that we were particularly bad at. Okay. And we were bad at um, gifting for our girlfriends at that time. So we, we started this website and it would be a reminder service, you know, three months before your girlfriend's birthday. So this is what you bought last year. This is what we would suggest you buy this year. And so that had that element to it. And we got a little bit of funding from some Cambridge Angels at that time. It was people like Herman Hauser, um, ET Capital and Crispin Gray from Cad Center. Got us going with a small amount of money. And uh, and we were twenty something years old. You know, one minute we were, you know, we were, we were the sexiest entrepreneurs in town. We got going. There was live interviews on Working Lunch and front page of the FT, all that sort of stuff going on. And the next minute, Boo.com happened, and before we knew it, um, the whole market crashed, and no one would even return our phone calls. Okay. So we really went through the washing machine of entrepreneurship in the first one. But anyway, we did get the business to break even and we um, we did a deal with a retailer based in London to run and manage it. That didn't actually work out as a, a business entity in the end, but we learned a lot from our first startup. 
And I remember a lesson that Herman told me, and he actually did invest in the company, but he always said, I never invest in first-time entrepreneurs. And when you're a first-time entrepreneur, you can't understand why. Um, but the amount of learning you get in your first business, you quickly understand, you know, you know why, what lessons you can learn and, and what you want to do better next time. We were so poor from the first startup, actually, because we hadn't taken salaries for such a long time. Um, we, we were just doing some consulting work while we thought of our next business idea. I was kind of a day or two a week doing business development for a local biotech company called Cambridge Biotechnology. And they span out the pharmacology department at Cambridge University. Um, and we're doing some work that was very enjoyable. Um, but the chemists were coming in and out the room saying, oh, you're, you know, we're outsourcing our chemistry to India. There's all problems with the project management and communication. Um, your boy, Sunil, was jesting with me. And we just thought, look, that's a, that's a market that already exists. We just have to do it better. Yep. Uh, opposed to an internet business where people were still dialing in at that time. We were creating a market. So we decided to go full steam ahead with that business, really. We, we remortgaged our house the second time. We started with two people in India in Ahmedabad. We'd never done business in India before. Uh, we grew it from two people to 175 chemists, about 350 people in total. Built it completely organically. And then we sold it to a company called Pyramal in 2011. And so what was it that led you, obviously you you built this successful business, you had exited. Uh, what was it that led you to make that first angel investment? What was it that led you to say, I want to give back to this ecosystem and also, you know, potentially get the financial upside of a super, being an investor in a super successful company? That is a good question. One I've actually never been asked for, why do we do it mad? I guess it's because if you're an entrepreneur, you just love that early stage innovative piece. And once you're growing a business and you're back into, you know, getting out the startup, you miss that startup phase. It's, it's, there's a lot of adrenaline. It's, it's, it's very high risk without a doubt. It's a, but it's a very interesting space and it's actually where all the innovation happens. In that first one year of a company, the innovation strategy, all the innovation you're doing is is basically the foundation of the whole company. And and you miss that part of it. As a as someone who's been an entrepreneur, uh, if I'm an entrepreneur now and I'm looking for investment and I listen to this podcast, yeah. how would I think as this new entrepreneur about an investment from somebody like yourself who has the background as an entrepreneur, particularly in this vertical of biotech and therapeutics versus maybe you know what we would unkindly call dumb money? Somebody who is an angel investor but hasn't got this background as as yours, uh, but you know maybe wants to just you know put twenty five, fifty thousand pounds into the company because they you know believe me as an entrepreneur or they think it's a nice idea without any overall real knowledge or that entrepreneurial experience. If I'm that first time entrepreneur, how should I be thinking about that? If you're a first time entrepreneur or entrepreneur in this space and you want to attract investment to buy into biotech, you need a lead investor. So you're going to have to go to, to the people who understand the space at some point. Uh, you rarely you'll get money from generalist investors uh, investing a startup who are outside the space on their own. It does happen, but generally you have to find someone who has an expertise in the area. So at some point you're going to have to justify your business to, to people within the industry who know the space very well. So I think the first point I would keep in mind is that every investment house has their own specialism and really to understand, you know, the people you're talking to and what their specialism is. Um, ours is therapeutics. Yeah. We're not, you know, but life science, people think we're biotech life sciences. It's, 
in general, which is very, very broad. So we get a lot of people coming to us with a diagnostic or a medical device. Um, but if they read our website, it's very clear that we're a therapeutics-focused company or therapeutics and AI to support. So it's, it's really to get a good understanding of where your angel or where your investor um, expertise lies. And then you will find that if you get that right and you can narrow down your investor base quite quickly to probably a handful of investors that really are focused in your space um, and the kind of monies that you're looking to raise and making sure that ties up as well. There's no point in coming to a, an angel investor and saying, I want to raise 10 million pounds because it just doesn't fit with their, um, with their funding base. So to make sure you sort of whittle it down very accurately and you'll find that you can put more time into a smaller number of investors and, and try and get it right. So I think that would be as the first point of call, make sure you pick your um, angel or venture capitalist carefully from day one. Cool. Yeah, one of, the, one of the things that I always recommend entrepreneurs to do is to do due diligence on their investors. Yep. If an investor or a potential investor is not willing to let you speak to their other investments, even the ones that went wrong, there's that's usually kind of a red flag or a sign of caution. That's a great point. And the fact that if you do that, it, it's a it's a green flag to an investor. It means you're taking it very seriously and you're taking the investment process very seriously. And, you know, you're very interested in taking investment, particularly from them. For sure. So I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I have a therapeutics startup and I listen to this podcast. I say, Sunil Shah, he would be an amazing investor in my company. Uh, what is it that you in particular are looking for? Is it team, market, technology or is it a mix of those how do you judge potential investments that is another very good question and unusually for us it's not just about the team obviously the team is extremely important but in a, in a therapeutics play it's a find out foundation science which is really really key because often we work with academics who do not have a fully formed team and it's really important the the basic science the foundation of what we're going to invest into is as robust as possible. So for us, actually, it's a science which is the most important part of the business. Because we go so early, it's rarely that we have fully formed teams. And so we can help build those teams or help put people in place to support and, and drive the science in it moving forward. And do you think about market size uh, when you're making these investments or is it really down to the science first? Rather than market size, we look at our customers or, or, the, or the acquisition partners. Okay. And uh, in the biotech therapeutic space, unlike the US, which they can go on to a series A, B, C, D, NASDAQ yeah. listing, we don't really have that ecosystem in place in the UK. And as, as a, an EIS fund, which is what we are now, we have to invest in UK-based companies. So what we look for is an acquisition partner. And we actually, so in the biotech therapeutic space, the people who are going to acquire those companies are the large pharma companies. So what we do before we make an investment is we will talk to the farmer and say, look, this is a kind of thing that we're looking at, the science, the area, uh, maybe the drug targets that, were, that we're looking at. Is it the kind of thing that if it works that you want to buy? So we're talking to the pharma companies even before we make the investments. When it comes to kind of managing deal flow, how do you do that? Do you Are you kind of open to, to cold introductions? Do you only go through network that you already have? How, if I'm an entrepreneur right now, and again, I've got this uh, very cool therapeutics idea or at least some science, how do I get in touch with you? As an investor, you get emailed a lot. Um, you, I would say you're inundated. So it does happen that we do look at things that come in through LinkedIn or other things, but it, it's more difficult to get the attention of the investment team. Ideally, if you're going to try, if you've got a short list of investors that you want to target, 
the best thing to do is to try and find a warm introduction. Those that come through a warm introduction or some kind of, we call it our hot network, are more likely to get proper airtime and get proper due diligence. And you'd look at things more glass half full if it's come through someone who you respect. Because people would only recommend something when they feel that they that there's something interesting there themselves. So if you're really serious about targeting an investor, find a way to them, which is a warmer or what we call our hot network. So they go to a lot of conferences. Um, you'll see them. We go to several biotech investment events in the US and in Europe. We go to loads of different conferences. We're we're out and about all over the space. We, we're we very well networked in the space. You won't have to look very hard uh, to find someone who knows us in the therapeutics or the biotech space. So it's, you've got to find a way into to get it a warm introduction. One of the things that angels that I've spoken to have always said, if I'm recommended by a company that I've invested in, that always, I take that potential investment very seriously. Yeah, if you, I mean, if it comes through someone who, who we respect, either yeah. through our collaborative network or our investment network, then it's going to get much more airtime. Yeah, and, and so once they have come in, that entrepreneur, they've made that connection with you, what are some of the best and worst things that they can do in that first meeting or that first pitch that was either going to say, make you say, this is really interesting, I'm really interested in investing, or absolutely not, this is just not for us? Well, first of all, they make sh- you have to make sure that the entrepreneurs are... Uh, pitching something that you, which you can invest into. I think the biggest issue is they pitch to you and they haven't done their homework on what your fund invests into. So that's one of the most important things. What we do expect, but we just sort of take on the chin now, is that we, we do see very wild project projections in nearly all the business plans that we review. If you can be more realistic with your projections, I think it's a plus or a positive. Um um, but yeah, you definitely need to be ambitious with with the goals of the company and what you want to achieve. Um, I think it's trying to make sure you ask for enough money as well. In biotech therapeutics, you do need more money, and maybe it can be staged and staggered so you can take seed, and then you know what realistic you need to to get to a point where you can collaborate or partner with a farmer or or do something broader or bigger in the US. Is there is there anything that anybody has done in you know can maybe that initial meeting or where they're actually pitching for investment that has turned you off completely and you're like absolutely not listening? Yeah, you can tell because because we go in so early. Yeah, it's really important for the that you that you're able to connect with the entrepreneur. Yeah, and um, they're listening to what you're saying. It's a real turn off if all they do is talk and they say how brilliant they are, which which is you know if they are genuinely brilliant, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, but normally as entrepreneurs, there is, you know, something that you can support and help them with. And having been through the entrepreneurship journey a number of times now, having founded several companies, you're able to help, but you want to be able to help. You, you know, you need to be to connect with them. There needs to yep. be a chemistry. You need to listen to each other and mutual respect. So that needs to be there. If someone just comes and talks, it doesn't listen. I think, you know, you, and you feel that you then can't work with them. That's That's a red flag. What we found is that the, the companies that were closest to us actually performed better. And it wasn't just because they were in Cambridge or whatever. It's because those companies, the CEOs, would come and knock on our door and say, hey, Sunil, I'm doing this. What do you think? Or you'd meet them in the coffee area in, within the same building. They'll say, you know, I need a connection to Novartis. Can you help with that? And you're able to sort of connect, help, and having that, you know, little chit-chat. It's not formal board meetings. It's just 
little bits of communication that you can support and help and keeps you engaged with what they're doing, allows you to help and support them. They feel they can come and ask for that help, which is why I think our incubator makes a lot of sense for the early stage companies, because we'll be able to leverage our support really across a broad number of companies. So is the, is the incubator open now or when is it scheduled to open? Uh, so the first building will be ready by the end of the year. Okay. Yeah, we've got awesome. builders in there right now, hammering away. So when entrepreneurs come to you, uh, they've seen that you're the UKBAA Angel of the Year, you're interested in investing in their business. How do you guys discuss valuation? If I'm an entrepreneur right now, looking to raise money from from angels or, or that kind of early seed or pre-seed round, how should I be thinking and talking about valuation? See, if you come to an angel and it's a pre-seed round, which is or a seed round, which is where we would where we invest. There's no point in pitching a business to us with a 20 million pound valuation because it's just not possible for us to invest in that, make money. You might as well save your energy and firepower for 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 different uh, venture base. So if you are pitching to an angel base, if you're pitching to Cambridge Angels and you're coming at super high valuations, angels generally add a lot of value to a business. They're very supportive, they're hands-on, but they do expect to come in at a lower valuation. So it's just to be realistic that, you know, there's no point in saying, I want to bring on angels and having a very high valuation because there'll be a disconnect. You'll be not laughed out, but you'll be quickly moved along, I would say, yeah. from, an, from some from various angel bases. You've got to go in with the appropriate valuation to the investors that you're going in at. And then do you have, uh, so once you've got an, uh, an entrepreneur and a company that you want to invest in, and he's coming with a realistic valuation, do, will you negotiate around that or will you you tend to accept that? How do you have those, like what are those actual conversations like? If it's realistic, we'll accept it. Okay. Because we'd rather them be happy with the valuation that they've got. If it's not realistic, we're very we're very blunt and say we don't think it's realistic and we'll say why we don't think it's realistic and we have lots of benchmarks so when you've uh, invested in one of your companies and whether they happen to be close to you or, or not close to you do you feel there's an inflection point when you can tell this one is going to be successful versus this one might not be successful you do have a feel but they 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 come in and come out because a lot of the time in biotech you're waiting for data it's a very data driven company and you're waiting for in vitro or in vivo data to help drive the decision making uh, so a lot of time you're waiting but you have a good hunch you have a good feel once you're in the mix of it which ones yeah. are going to be successful obviously you could still get bad data and, and your hunch just hasn't played through um but you do get a good feeling of the way that people work, the credibility of the team, how they're going around their decision-making, whether they've got a plan A, B, C, and D. If A fails, is there another way forward? And the, the better entrepreneurs are thinking, okay, if that doesn't work, then I'm going to try that, I'm going to try that, I've got that as a backup. Um, you, what you don't want to get into a situation is, oh, that key experiment didn't work. Well, we tried our best. Let's move on yeah. to the next thing. And that, you know, that's not, that's biotech doesn't work if if, that, if you rely on one thing. And that's what the US biotechs are very good at. They've got a plan B, C, D, E. If that didn't work, they're going to find another way. We need to get better at that in the UK, I believe. Yeah. Is that kind of something that you're looking for when entrepreneurs come and talk to you? Do you ever ask them, if this doesn't work, what's plan B, what's plan C? Always ask them. Yeah. Yeah. And the good ones always have an answer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Bessemer's Ventures has this uh, very famous anti-portfolio of companies that they saw but didn't invest in for whatever reason and then went on to incredible success. Have you got anything in your anti-portfolio company that you saw for whatever reason decided not to invest in and then went off to incredible success? That's a very awkward question, but I have. <laughs> so Prashant, uh, my brother, saw Xylo when they're in their infancy. I think they were doing a presentation at the judge and he was doing some mentoring there. 
And he called me up and said, oh, I've got to talk to this company. It's the best thing ever. The entrepreneurs are amazing. Um, we've got to invest in this company. And I think at the time I was in the middle of like too many things. I was trying to juggle a lot of things personally and both uh, in, in the business world. And for one reason or another, I did talk to them on the phone, but didn't really engage with them properly. Anyway, we've, it, was one that, it was the one that got away because um, uh, I think about 18 months later, they got bought for a colossal amount of money from uh, Nova Dolly. So good luck and well done to them. Yeah. But you just have to take on the chin that you can't, sometimes these things happen yeah. in our game and we can't invest in everything. Although we did go through a massive reflection after that. It's like, what what happened to our processes? Why did we not investigate this further, et cetera, et cetera? Because uh, Prashant was most unhappy that we didn't <laughs> put the money in, as we all were. But yeah. yeah. Other than having those uh, B, C, D, E, F plans, what can entrepreneurs do to make sure that they are building as successful a company as possible? So we give a little bit unusual advice here as entrepreneurs. We when we built our own business, we didn't just constantly think about the exit. And a lot of boards I go to, there's, you know, the, there's a lot of discussion around when the exit comes or the entrepreneurs are always thinking about the exit or when I get that exit. Obviously, you have to have a plan in mind and you sort of flush that out at the beginning. But then the, the, the remit is to really build a really good company with strong yeah. people, strong team, have really proper values. And don't think about, I'm building a company to sell it. I'm building a company... To, to make it into a great company uh, with solid values, with uh, good principles, uh, equal opportunities, you know, good male and female ratios, all these things which will help you develop a nice, proper, rounded culture. And I think if you do that, then the exit will probably end up coming to you. And when it comes, it'll be a much better exit. So it's to build and think about building a proper company rather than just saying, okay, well, you know, next year I'm going to sell it, I'm going to sell it, because it may never happen. Awesome. Sunil Shah, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts.